This is Macro Horizons, monthly episode 13, Breaking Down the Breakout, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Margaret Karens, here with Ian Linging, John Hill, Dan Belton, Ben Jeffrey, and Stephen Gallo from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our thoughts on the potential market implications of the coronavirus as new cases in China are declining but increasing in several other countries, resulting in a massive flight to quality, which has pushed 30-year yields to record lows. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. So let's talk about 30-year yields at record lows and what this is telling us about the risks to the economy and the global backdrop. Well, Margaret, I think that you are right to point out the record low long bond yield and what it does potentially mean for the rest of the market, what it means for the real economy, and what it's telling us about the global macro landscape. One of my biggest takeaways from some of our recent conversations with the market has been that people truly expect rates to continue falling as long as the coronavirus issue hasn't been adequately addressed. The question isn't, will the market see lower yields? It's how much lower will they get before we see some type of stabilization? It seems pretty likely that investors will continue to seek stability and risk aversion and treasuries are still the safest place to be in this event. And given that the virus is now spreading outside of China, the risks are continuing to mount. From a fundamental perspective, one way that I think about whether the decline in rates has gone too far, aka are we near that moment where things are going to snap higher, is, well, let's look at what the market is implying the forward curve to be. If you look at the implied 10-year yield 10 years from now, which all else equal should be somewhere around neutral, so call it 2% to 2.5%, the 10-year tenure is right around there. Now it's on the low end, about 2.1%, but it's not unreasonable as of yet. I guess where I'm going with this is, yes, I agree that rates have some space to fall, but at least by those measures, we're not completely disproportionate where we are now it's likely that we might see that type of capitulation further out the curve at some point, and then we would expect to see things stabilize in more rational territory. Another aspect of what the market's grappling with at this stage is how quickly is the Fed going to be willing to respond? And more importantly, this will define what the next stage of the rate cycle looks like. And that seems to be an obvious point. But if we find that Powell and company are willing to very quickly respond, the effective lower bound for Fed funds comes into range, QE is actually back on the table. To your point, John, that implies something much different for the next 10 years in terms of the forward space than if the Fed were to 
keep rates on hold for the balance of 2020, and we saw inflation come back into the system. I think it's safe to say that that bearish re-steepening ship has sailed, as it were. One other place where we could see a bearish re-steepening is one way to think about the impact of the coronavirus is it's a negative aggregate supply shock. All else equal, that could actually be quite inflationary and reintroduce some upside risk to the price outlook. Obviously, that would feed through into a little bit of higher yields and a steeper curve as term premia comes back into the world. Yeah, I'd take the other side of that argument because I think that when the market sees supply shocks flow through the system, whether it's oil, whether it's even core goods, the market and the Fed in particular are very quick to look past that and characterize it as transitory, more of a tax on the consumer. And I think a great example of that is what we saw with some of the tariffs, the steel tariffs and the appliance tariffs. What happened? Small increase in the core inflation series, but lower volumes in terms of sales that ultimately led to a dimmer economic outlook. I'm with you, Ian, on that. I think the real risk is demand shock where consumption falls off and the whole feedback loop starts to take hold and just everything turns quite negative. I think the real risk here is that the Fed might respond too late or by not enough. And that ties to their messaging of a material reassessment of the economy would be needed for them to actually take action. And we've been debating for a while what a material reassessment would look like in practical terms. Is it going to be a material reassessment based on market prices, i.e. equities sell off another 5-10%, volatility spikes, financial conditions are tighter, or is it going to be a material reassessment based on hard data, i.e. not the ISMs, not the sentiment data, but a real downturn in the economy via perhaps it's the employment market, perhaps it's something a bit more closely linked to the supply chain. If I had to hazard a guess I would say that we know the transfer mechanism that occurred in 2018, the multinationals getting hit, that flowing through to the equity market. I don't have a strong reason to expect that that scenario wouldn't be the base case, or rather it wouldn't be the coal mine canary that the Fed has been waiting for to trigger that material reassessment. That said, it's definitely not a clear-cut path for monetary policy at this point. Going back to 30-year yields at record lows, does the Fed even need to cut or has the market already done the work for them? That's a really good point, Margaret. The issue when we've seen that occur in the past is the market easing for the Fed. Yes, on one side, it's stimulative for valuations. It will help the equity market or rather keep risk assets from coming under greater pressure. The flip side is the market is content to get ahead of the Fed, but if the Fed doesn't ultimately deliver, there'll be a day of reckoning, as it were, which is presumably a bearish impulse further out the curve. Ian, you bring up a great point, and that is given how far market pricing has come in terms of reflecting additional accommodation by the end of the year, we have 60 basis points of rate cuts priced in by 2021. So in the event that the Fed endeavors to walk these expectations back, there is a real risk of a quote-unquote hawkish impulse that could trigger policy error fears, even if the hawkish impulse is just attempting to get expectations back in line with the flat path of policy. 
And for some historical context, we took a look at moments over the past 30 plus years when this extent of easing was priced into the front end every single time the feds had to follow through with additional cuts. Now, of course, there's no one-size-fits-all rule, but it certainly does point to the fact that either the Fed's going to have to implement that rather hawkish shift in forward guidance, or they're going to have to follow the market's rate path lower. We do have three-month bills versus tens at negative 17 earlier today. That is amazing. And some of the extremes at which the curve is at this point in terms of inverted three-month bills versus tens, the flatness of the overall curve, I think is very indicative of a market that's simply saying, regardless of what the Fed does, buying 10-year treasuries at a yield north of 50 basis points is a really attractive proposition. The Other thing that I would add in terms of some of the the more intriguing debates and conversations that we've been having on the desk is how big will the Fed go with that first cut? There does seem to be a bit of complacency around this idea that the Fed is just going to do another 25, 25, 25 to deliver a finer fine tuning or a reactive preemptive cut. The issue, at least in my mind, is they need to be far more aggressive, particularly given the proximity to the effective lower bound. And I think that's consistent with their messaging of a material reassessment of the economy that would imply a quicker, deeper decline in Fed funds. Taking a step back and characterizing what we currently know now, we have the number of new cases of the COVID-19 in China declining. We've got the virus spreading to new countries with the potential for more people to get quarantined, depending on how this goes over the next week or two. We've got Italy, where the latest breakout, they don't know how the individual contracted the virus, which I think is especially concerning. In this backdrop, how far do we think yields can continue to fall? Well, we came into this year with the core tenant that in 10-year space, it's going to be all about trading the range. A 100 to 125 basis point range in 10-year yields is not only very consistent with history, i.e. on any 12-month rolling basis, that tends to be roughly the size of the range, but it's also consistent with where we are so late in the cycle, both the business cycle as well as the interest rate cycle. So clearly in that context, a zero handle on 10-year yields is very achievable. We also thought and we continue to think that we will see an extended period of record low yields in 10s and 30s. By extended, we're not suggesting years, but rather a durable period, let's call it two or three months, in which we're drifting towards a paradigm shift in the overall rates complex. And frankly, we're already kind of there if you think about what the long bond is doing and what it implies for the global growth and inflation outlook. So basically, the midpoint of our 100 to 125 basis point range is probably centered closer to 150 than the 2% that many in the market might have anticipated late last year. Yep. I think that is very safe to say. And at this stage, 150 makes sense. If anything, depending on how the next several weeks play out, 
one might with the straight face bias that even a little bit lower to call it, say, 140, which implies it'll be very difficult to see a two handle on tins for the next 24 to 36 months. So against this global backdrop, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about investment grade spreads, the reaction thus far to the coronavirus and our outlook for spreads. Sure. So, I mean, spreads held in pretty well until Monday. They widened about seven basis points on Monday as the Dow sold off. And I think you're going to see sort of to Ian's point earlier about how we could see these low yields for a prolonged period of time, given that the virus could presumably at any point pop up in a new area, I think you're going to see a risk-off tone in spreads or at least see this wider spread level pricing for a prolonged period of time, given just the uncertainty that the coronavirus presents. And then if we do see it feed through to the real economy and see a significant downturn economically, you're going to see a lot of ratings downgrades. A lot of these triple B companies that we've talked about for many months now, this growing share of triple B companies in the investment grade index, you're going to see a lot of downgrades among these companies. And a lot of this lower quality debt in the investment grade index get washed out into high yield. And that's going to result in some significant losses for IG investors. Thus far, it seems like it's been pretty contained to equities underperforming with regard to some of the energy companies, commodities, autos, but hasn't really bled into investment grade spreads. No, you still have spreads at historically pretty tight levels. There's been about 12 basis points off their tights, so really not much underperformance, at least not anything sustained. Let's switch gears again and turn to Stephen Gallo, who's on the ground in London. Stephen, can you give us an update on your thoughts with regard to the coronavirus spreading to Europe, the reaction over there, and the impact on the uh, euro? Sure, Margaret. Uh, Well, as we wrote in the Macro Monthly last week, uh, we talked about euro dollar and a possible move to parity. I think it would be silly to say that the risks of a move to parity over the sort of next six to nine months haven't increased. In fact, our view is that they have increased pretty significantly. That's the first point I would make. The second point I would make is that given the backdrop in Europe, in addition to the situation surrounding COVID-19, euro dollar doesn't need a persistent risk off move in global markets in order to go to parity. The risks of a move to parity are high even without the COVID-19 situation. But just look at the key points. First of all, on the COVID-19 situation, this is an economic logistical nightmare for governments in the Eurozone and global supply chains, which of course the Eurozone is badly exposed to because of the share of exports and German GDP, how dependent the Eurozone is on external demand. Implementation, as we already know, coordination, these sorts of things, these are not the Eurozone's strong points, even in the best of times. This situation presents them with significant challenges. Fiscal policy maneuverability, as I think I've mentioned many times on our podcast, is very limited in the Eurozone because of the EU's fiscal rules and the rigidity that is inherent or embedded in in the treaties governing the functioning of the EU and the Eurozone. And of course, you have this situation in the EU 27 of open borders. That means that if people with health issues spill over from one country to another and become dependent on those medical systems or things of that nature, that could easily inflame political tensions in Europe. So this is a situation we we, we have to watch. But even without the COVID-19 
situation, and this, this goes back to the point I made right at the beginning, look at the three largest economies of the Eurozone, you know, France, Italy, and Germany. All three of them are basically in a state of political paralysis and gridlock and you know, stagnation in terms of the lack of new ideas. That's been a key feature in these countries, at least over the last three to five years. But aside from that, the political paralysis and gridlock even in the best of times, is a, is, a, is a negative situation to have. But this is now a situation where you're going to have to see governments level up and deal with the crisis is much harder. We've talked about the potential for a monetary policy response from the Fed. What's the attitude about potential central bank intervention, whether that be from the ECB or BOE? Well, let me take the Bank of England first. You mentioned the Bank of England in the UK. The UK, I think, is a relative bright spot in Europe because of political stability here. And reform and fiscal activism are going to be the cornerstones of UK economic policy for at least 2020, if not beyond. Now, COVID-19 is certainly a downside risk to the UK. I don't want to be misunderstood. But in terms of where would you put your money now? Where is there better reward for risk? I would say probably the UK. If anything, the fiscal dynamic in the UK is probably going to mean that the BOE is more sidelined in 2020 rather than forced to ease aggressively. You know, that being said, if the Fed does ease and it sets off a wave of, of global central bank easing as a result of COVID-19, I wouldn't rule out a BOE rate cut. But starting from the basis that the fiscal and reform environment in the UK is better, most likely the BOE will be sidelined in 2020. On the Eurozone side, I don't think things are that optimistic. First of all, the ECB is basically out of bullets. The Fed is down towards the end of what it has as you know ammunition. The ECB is arguably even in a worse position. And of course, as I mentioned, the, the lack of fiscal maneuverability in the Eurozone. But I would also turn your attention to the situation in Germany. One of the things that's been clear, it's definitely been in the German press. I've heard about it in conversations that I've had with contacts on the ground in Germany. German savers are really frustrated with this negative interest rate situation. And if the ECB is forced to go further into negative territory, even if that's tiered, or if they change the nature of their tiering on, on the deposit rate, a further move into negative rates or more QE is not going to go down all that well in Northern European economies, in particular in Germany. So Stephen, you've outlined a pretty fragile global backdrop, but yet here in the US, the consumer is still extraordinarily resilient. And I think in the face of the strong consumer, it seems difficult to imagine the Fed responding as early as March or April. What would have to change in the next few weeks to move the Fed pricing up? For what it's worth to get a Fed move on the table as quickly as March or April implies a significant repricing of risk in the global economy, whether that comes in the form of equities presumably driven by another leg of coronavirus fears or that comes out of the real economy remains to be seen. I don't think that consumer confidence will hold up if we see a 7 to 10% correction in the equity market. And that's realistically the only thing that could happen over the next few weeks that would prompt the Fed into action. At least that's my take. Thanks, Ian. I completely agree with you. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our BMO experts, and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 13 breaking down the breakout. 
please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.karens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.